your church. We knit our hearts to you, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the saints of God said, Amen. Amen. All right, saints, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. And where I'm going to be beginning here is where I left off last week is in verse 11. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. What I want to do is before I actually start this study, I want to read through it. So for those of you that have studied, it'll be a good review. For those of you that have come in kind of cold and have not really experienced this last part of the passage, I want to read it to you so you have it resonating in your mind and in your heart prior to us beginning the study. So nothing here will be jumped out at you. Nothing here will come in cold. It'll all be just this warm reminder of everything that we're going to start reading right now. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more, verse 14, shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who were called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death, uh, the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven should be purified with these but with the heavenly things themselves, with the better sacrifices than these. For Christ, verse 24, has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Last week when we began to look at Hebrews chapter 9, we were comparing in this sense the old sanctuary, the old covenant, and how we saw how initially how it talked about that sanctuary. It was an earthly sanctuary there in verse 1. And what we're seeing here is this, that once we get into verse 11, it begins to bring this beautiful in a sense, comparison to this earthly tabernacle, the earthly covenant to this new covenant, to the very tabernacle, which is Jesus Christ. And so within this comparison, now we move from the finite in verses 1 through 10, and we move to the infinite here as we come to verse 11. Because what we see is this. In verse 11, it talks about initially where there's this greater high priest. I mean, look at what it says. It says, Christ came as a high priest. We already looked at the high priest of Aaron, how he was temporary. He had to offer bulls and goats for himself and then for the people, and it was always the blood of another. Yet Jesus Christ comes as a high priest. He comes, of course, in that order of Melchizedek, the eternal priesthood. But we see initially that in verse 11, it talks about here it's a greater high priest. Not as only the greater high priest, but we see this. There's a greater promise. There's a greater majesty that comes because Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. See, understand that, that when he came, his whole reason for coming was to die for what? Our future. Our future. The, the past, the present is paid for. Everything that he's done is for a future relationship that we can have. Because we ourselves, outside of the blood of Christ, can never have that long-lasting, intimate relationship. And we looked at that on Sunday how there were people who were on the outside and they could never truly understand what was going on inside the sanctuary. But only the priests could go into the sanctuary and their ministry was simply service and service and service, doing and doing and doing. And then only the high priest, the one man, only once a year for a very short time could go into the Holy of Holies. And it was God's way of saying, listen, you cannot come into a long-lasting, intimate permanent relationship with me but notice what jesus does when jesus comes as a high priest in verse 11 of the good things to come everything is about this long lasting intimate relationship that we can now have with god and it is going to be perfected and as we see this is what christ does he's a greater high priest with a greater promise with a greater majesty of what he's done and then we see this it's with the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Not only do we have a greater high priest, a greater promise with a greater majesty of work that he's done to get us forever with God, but we see here that it is a greater, more perfect tabernacle. It is a greater sanctuary because it is truly the body of Jesus himself, not made with hands that is not of this creation. And so we see that verse 11 ends with what? It's a greater quality. 
It's a greater quality. I mean, there, there's, there's some things. Keep in mind that here we can make things of what? Well, there's different quality of, of you know, lumber. It's all very expensive nowadays, but there's still different quality. And, and yet with that, what? It's still earthly, and it's still made by hands. And yet here God says there is a greater quality. Because why? It's not made with hands. It's not of this creation. So as we're looking here now in this first part of verse 11 of Hebrews 9, we see that he's the greater high priest. We see that there's a greater promise of the future with a greater majesty. We understand there's a greater sanctuary. And then there's a greater quality. But here's the thing. Once you get into verse 12, we realize here that what? With a higher quality, usually what happens is this. There's a greater cost. There's a greater worth. And yet there's a greater quality. Now, I don't know if you've ever gone and you've thought about purchasing tools. Now, there, there's some tools that you can buy that are kind of middle of the line and, and they're, they're, they're good. They have a purpose. Some of those tools are better than others. But then you can do what? Then you can buy the top of the line. Now, I'm not mentioning any name brands at all. So, so Mark, just know that as you listen to this. No name brands. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that within tools, you know there are higher qualities than others, like the ones you have. You know, those are ones that other people, they may buy a lesser quality. But the greater the quality, the what? The higher the price. You're not going to pay the same price for a higher quality tool than you will for something that's um, not as high as quality. And the same thing with, with whatever, you, whatever it is that you're buying. You can get cars that are of very low quality, and then you get cars that are very high quality. But what happens? You're going to pay for it. Well, so when you have this greater quality, understand what's going to happen. There has to be a greater cost. And we see that cost here in verse 12 because that cost, a greater cost means what? It's a greater worth. If you pay more for your house than somebody else, what's probably going to happen is this. It says that your house is worth more than the other house. So the greater cost, the greater worth. And notice what Jesus does. Notice what he pays for us. Notice here with this greater tabernacle, this greater creation, he says in verse 12, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So we see here this, this incredible cost, the incredible worth of what it is that his blood purchased. And we know that that's us. And amazingly is this, that when Jesus gave this price of this value, and I love this, he paid it in full. It wasn't like, okay, I'm going to take out a loan, I'll pay a little now and I'll pay a little later. He pays it in full. And just to show us that he is absolutely sincere in saying, listen, I've paid it in full and to show you that one day you will be mine in heaven for eternity, what I will do is this. I will give you my Holy Spirit now. And the Holy Spirit will come and reside within you. It's the surety. It's the down payment that he says, you're mine. 
And I'm proving that this work is done by giving you the Holy Spirit now that you'll be able to receive fully my blessings, my promises, my work. And so I love the heart of this because we see here that Jesus here pays this higher price tag. He pays the highest price tag with the thing that is most valuable, his own blood, the blood of God. And so not with simply the blood of bulls and the blood of goats, but it was his, with his own blood that he entered the most holy place. And so what I want to do is in just a, a, a little bit of time here, I want to focus on verse 12. Because as we were looking at the greater high priest in verse 11, the greater promise and the greater majesty, the greater sanctuary, the greater quality, and then we see here the greater cost. What I want to do is this. I want to focus on, on just a second because what we see is this. It makes a statement here in verse 12 where it says, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Understand this greater purchase. The, the one who is giving the blood is the person of Jesus Christ. This greater purchase, this greater quality was with the blood of Jesus Christ. Not with the blood of bulls, goats, and calves, but with his own blood. So we see here... How incredible is this new sacrifice because the sacrifice is what? It's his own blood. It's the person of Jesus that gave his blood. And so we see here it's the greatest of all people, Jesus Christ. It's the greatest price. It's his own blood. And as we look to this, we see it's also the greatest place. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Now, just as a tie-in, I want to share with you in verse 24 here of Hebrews 9, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So when we see this here, that he with his own blood entered the most holy place, it's not speaking here, as the author of Hebrews says, about the holy place of Moses, but he's referring to he now takes his blood into the very presence of God, into heaven itself. This is where we see here that, yes, it's the greater person, it's the greater price, it's the greater place. And not only that, but we see here that it's a greater permanence. We understand here that when it says in verse 12, but he, with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He does it once, just once. He doesn't have to do it again and again and again in Hebrews 9.25, not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, then he would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He does it once. And so we see this incredible permanence. Once and for all, he does it. And then we see here 
that with this permanence that it's only once. He doesn't have to do it again and again and again. It's not temporary. It's permanent. It's not like he offers it here and then the next year he offers it again. It's a permanent. We see this greater permanence of his sacrifice. And then the last thing that we see is this. It's perpetual. And that's what makes us the greatest of all. It says here at the end of verse 12, having obtained eternal redemption. Now, you have to understand that this whole area of eternal redemption really begins to point out one thing, that this work of Jesus Christ has no end. Once you receive his gift, you're locked in forever and ever and ever and ever. This is what he does. And so when we have this eternal redemption, this is what we see that he's done. So in the verse 11 and 12, literally you could spend almost eight months just saying, and the whole topic is Jesus is greater. Just over and over and over with every one of these subjects, he's the greater high priest, the greater promise, the greater majesty, the greater sanctuary, the greater quality, the greater worth, the greater cost. He's the greater person, the greater price, the greater place, the greater permanence, the greater perpetual you know, of, of what he's done. It blows my mind just how incredible these two verses are. But rather than camping out on them, I just want to give you that so that you can just kind of just let your mind explode going through it so that for the sake of time we can begin to move on. But I want to show you how verse 11 and 12 just really expand here who Jesus is. Now in verse 13 and verse 14, it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I want to point out two things before I jump into more of a study here. I want you to see one in verse 13, that the very end of it, it says, for the purifying of the flesh. At the end of verse 13, it talks about the purifying of the outward. Now, in the end of verse 16, it says, cleanse your conscience, or the end of verse 14 says, cleanse your conscience from dead works. It's the cleansing from the inward. And I want you to see there's a huge difference of what we're going to look at. One is this external cleansing, more ceremonially, and then the other is an internal cleansing, which is what? Well, as we see this, this is going to be the purchase price of eternal redemption. We have our sins forgiven. So when it talks about in verse 13, talking about in a sense, this outer cleansing versus the inward, he says not with the blood of bulls and not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. Wait, verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? When we look to these things and we see the blood of bulls and goats, the ashes of a heifer, two things that I want you to at least become aware of when we look to these blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer. I want to start with simply looking at the ashes of a heifer, and then I want to deal with the blood of the bulls and goats. If you're familiar with the ash of the heifer, there's a 
passage in Numbers chapter 19. I want to read the first nine verses to you. And all you're going to see is this, that with this heifer, it's going to be a red heifer. And that's why Israel right now is looking for a red heifer. And I think they have one. But when they sacrifice that red heifer, what they're going to do is this. They are going to not just simply slaughter the heifer, but they are going to allow the heifer to be consumed so that it is completely ashes. In other words, like uh, when we're at a crematorium, you know, where, where if you're cremated, your body goes into nothing but ash. And that's what they're going to do to this red heifer. And the reason they do this is because they're going to be adding the ashes of a heifer. You don't have to add a lot, but you have to add the ashes of this red heifer into the clear spring water. And then you wash yourself, and then through that washing, you are cleansed ceremonially. But let's look at this passage and see how um, it's declared as we read in Numbers chapter 19, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord commanded, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring you a red heifer. And notice this, it says, without blemish. Now we're going to follow up on that in a little bit, but just make a note of that. This heifer has to be without blemish, in which there is no defect, and on which a yoke has never come. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest, that he may take it outside the camp, and it shall be slaughtered before him. And Eliezer the priest shall take some of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood seven times directly in front of the tabernacle of meeting. And the heifer shall be burned in his sight, its hide, its flesh, its blood, and its offal shall be burned. In other words, completely, nothing taken out. Verse 6, And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast them into the midst of the fire, burning the heifer. And the priest shall wash his clothes. He shall bathe in water. And afterwards he shall come into the camp. The priest shall be unclean until evening. And the one who burns it shall wash his clothes in water, bathe in water, and shall be unclean until evening. So he's going to be ceremonially unclean. Verse 9, then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer, store them outside the camp in the clean place, and they shall be kept for the congregation of the children of Israel for the water of purification. It is for purifying from sin. So as we see now, what the author of Hebrews seeks to do is he points out in verse 13, the blood of bulls and goats. That is one thing we're looking at. And the secondary thing is the ashes of a red heifer. Sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh. So we see what it does is it cleanses you ceremonially. Now, what is it about these, the blood of the bulls and the goats? Well, when it comes to the blood, I want to share with you just a couple of passages just so you can be aware of what's going on when it comes to the sacrifices of God. When you're going to have a sacrifice to God, initially... 
The sacrifice that Israel gave was there during the Passover, found in Exodus chapter 12. But prior to the the slaughter of the lamb, it makes this statement in Exodus 12, verses 3 through 6. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Now in verse 5 of Exodus 12, it makes this statement, and the lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Understand that what this lamb had to be, the lamb had to be very clearly without blemish. There had to be an an inspection of the lamb. Now, why is this whole understanding of without blemish so important? Well, when you come to the area of the different feasts that Israel would celebrate, and as God would give them the feast to walk through, and they would be pointing to that ministry, the first coming of Jesus, and of course, the second coming, I want to share with you just three passages, jot them down. If you want, you can turn there. I'm going to be reading from Numbers 28 and Numbers 29, but I'm only going to be reading three verses. In Numbers 28, I'm going to be reading verses 19 and 31, and in Numbers 29, I'm going to be reading verse 8. They'll basically say the same thing, but I want to read it to you so that you can understand exactly what is going on. Now, when here... God is talking to Moses as far as this is what you do for the feast of the Passover. He makes this statement in Numbers 28, verse 19. And you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year. And then he makes this statement, be sure... They are without blemish. Note that, mark that, understand that. Everything that he's going to offer, these two young bulls, the one ram, the seven lambs of the first year, he comes and he makes this statement, you be sure that they are without blemish. You inspect them, you look at them, you verify them. And then when you see here, when it comes to the Feast of first fruits. Pentecost coming up this Sunday, what we see is this. In Numbers 28, verse 31, he says, Be sure they are without blemish. And again, he says that when you have these, these bulls and the, the, the lambs, make sure that everything here is without blemish. Now, in Numbers 29, verse 8, When it deals with the Day of Atonement, he says this, You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, young one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. And again, he makes this statement, Be sure they are without blemish. 
Now, why am I harping on this one point? Make sure they are without blemish. Inspect them, know them. Why is it so important? Well, if all of these, verse 13, the blood of the bulls and the goats and the heifer had to be without blemish, had to be perfect, then he says this in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Now realize this, and I want to just kind of have you filter in on one aspect of what we're looking at. Keep in mind that when you, as the sinner who wanted to worship God, if you came as a worshiper saying, I want to come near to God, you would do what? You would bring a sacrifice. If you want to come near, you'd bring a sacrifice. Now, when you come near to God, I want you to realize one truth, that no matter what you have done, no matter what you are doing, the priest is not going to inspect you. I love that. He's not going to inspect the worshiper. He inspects the sacrifice. And I think this is so important. If you get this truth down and then understand when here, why it's so important to realize, oh, now I get it, Lord. See, you're not looking at me. You're not looking at the one who wants to come and worship. You looked at what? You look at the sacrifice. I don't care if you had a one-eyed, one-arm, one-legged Jew who came up and said, I want to sacrifice to the Lord. The priest would look at his lamb. And if the lamb was without blemish, the sacrifice would be accepted. He would be covered. And it's so incredible that the imperfections of the person mean nothing. Why is that so important? Well, we know that according to Scripture, as Scripture begins to open up and Scripture begins to just share some powerful, powerful truths, I want to read to you just one portion of Scripture found in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 18, verse 20. And it simply says this, and you, you know the passage as he, he's talking about, you know, I'm not going to judge the sins of the, the son to the father, the father to the son. But he does make this statement in verse 20. And this is why it's so important to realize what these sacrifices are, what these substitutions are. Because when we take a look at here, the sacrifice has to be perfect. And then you do what? You take this perfect sacrifice and you slit its throat and you drain its blood. And you think, oh my goodness, this is so bloody. This is so horrid. Why does God need such blood? Well, keep in mind that God is trying to teach us what? That it's sin, how serious it is. Because in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20 the Holy Spirit through Ezekiel says this incredible words, the soul who sins shall die. And that's what the promise of God is. You sin, you die. You sin, you die. However, what happens was this, the soul that sinned should have died. 
He should have just said, simply, I give up my life. This is the ransom that I need to do for my sin. And you should die and be eternally separated from God. But God says, listen, in the Old Testament, I'm going to allow you these temporary coverings of these bulls and goats and the lambs and the heifers, and you can be ceremonial cleansed. You can be cleansed on the outward, but that's where the precious blood of these sacrifices were. But what's interesting is this. Every one of these sacrifices, how many of them do you think volunteered? Where they said, listen, I'll do it. I'll give my life for that guy. No, these were unwilling sacrifices. How do you know they were unwilling? Well, because the way that they were sacrificed was this. There in Israel, there by the tabernacle, and through the temple, they would have these areas where you would pin down the animal and you would pin its head to the ground. And the animal would be there with its head to the ground and it couldn't move because you were holding it down, holding its head. The knife would come and slit its throat. And it wasn't like he just walked right up and said, look, take me. But understand, all of these were make sure they are without blemish, make sure that they are pure, and then they are unwilling sacrifices that would give their blood for you and for me because it should be the soul that sins shall die. But we see if these blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of the ashes of the heifer, if they clean and if they sanctify the purifying of the flesh, if they can cleanse you ceremonially, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Do you understand what here the author of Hebrews is trying to say? If all these that were so pure and so perfect, if that would cover you, but only cover you because they were what? They were unwilling sacrifices. But if you have a willing sacrifice, if Jesus Christ comes and he sheds his blood, all of a sudden understand that God isn't looking at you the priest never inspected the worshiper. The priest always inspected the sacrifice. And that's why when you read in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, it makes this statement, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. Satan who accuses us has been cast down. And it says this in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb. That's why it's so important. They overcame him by what? Not my perfection. Don't look at me. You're accusing me. I know I'm flawed. I could be the one-eyed, I could be the one arm, I could be the one leg that I'm getting there slowly but surely. I could be that kind of person, or I could do what? Don't look at me, look at the sacrifice. So when Satan comes and looks at me, God says, listen, I'm not inspecting Lowell. I'm inspecting the sacrifice. That's why here the Spirit says to John, they overcame him. They overcame the accuser of the brethren who pointed out me and me and me. And he says, no, you don't. They overcame him 
by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Jesus is my Savior. I come because of Jesus' finished work. We've been talking about this before. How are we accepted before God? It isn't by works. It isn't by anything that we're going to do. I'm accepted before God because I say, Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I come to you through my Savior, Jesus Christ. Says, oh, you're accepted. I know that sacrifice. I know it is pure. I know it is without blemish. And so we begin to see here this incredible understanding of what the sacrifice means. Because as Satan wants to come and accuse us, God says, it's not, don't look at this, the guy who's given the sacrifice. Look at the sacrifice for the guy. And if my sacrifice, if your sacrifice, if Jesus Christ, as we look to him and that sacrifice, and we see over and over again the truth that Scripture portrays in it, and what Scripture simply says is this, be sure he is without blemish. Just be sure. Is he? Well, absolutely, because we know just like the Passover lamb was there, chosen on the 10th, he wasn't sacrificed until twilight on the 14th. And so we see what happened, that he was inspected for those three days. Jesus Christ, when he went into Jerusalem, and there when they pronounced him as the Messiah, he went in and he cleansed out the temple, and then the religious leaders begin to do what? They begin to question him, and question him, and question him, trying to find what? fault with him. They were trying to find a blemish in his person, in his ministry, in something about him, and they found nothing. Make sure that he was without blemish. And they did, and they questioned him, and he came through. And so we understand that our perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, is verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself. Do you understand? It wasn't that he was an unwilling sacrifice. It wasn't like there in eternity past that there was the father and the spirit and the son and they said, okay, let's all draw straws. And it just so happened that Jesus drew the short one. That's not what happened. He said, no, I'm choosing to give myself. I will become a man. I will be the kinsman to mankind and I will offer myself, my sinless blood, the perfect sinless blood of God. I will offer that for them. I will be their substitute. So we begin to see here how much more. Do you understand this greater price? So the, the lesser price is the, the, the goats and the calves and the bulls and the, the, the ashes of the heifer. They can do this outward cleansing, but none can cleanse the conscience. None can cleanse who I really am on the inside. But verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I realize now on the inside that guess what? I'm cleansed. I am cleansed. The beautiful thing about Jesus is this. He doesn't clean his fish before he catches them. He catches his fish, and he begins the cleansing on the inside. The Holy Spirit's on the inside, and what happens is this. Maybe you've seen it in your own life. Maybe you've seen it in other people's lives, but when someone gives their heart to God, 
that initially there are some things that change right away, but there are other things that said, I thought you were a Christian. <laughs> but what they don't see is this, the Spirit of God is working in you. The Spirit of God is convicting you, and you continue to confess and repent and, and ask God, forgive me of this, and, and show me what is in, in your heart. I want to walk in your truth. And as we begin to do that, all of a sudden, what our consciousness cleansed. See, I can come boldly to the throne of God because I realize I'm not coming through my works. God, you're not inspecting me. You're inspecting the sacrifice, the one who willingly gave himself for me. And because of that, it's paid in full. I realize here that what we have, according to Hebrews 9.12, is this, having obtained eternal redemption. That God has cleansed me. He's already promised me eternal life. And so this is what we see here, which much, how much more shall the blood of Christ. We begin to see this incredible sacrifice, how it's infinite versus the finite. And as amazing as these blood of the bulls and the, the goats and the calves and the the the, the ashes of the heifer, as amazing as they are, they point to what? That work of Jesus Christ. But every one of them had to be pure. Every one of them had to be perfect. And every one of them died for the covering of sins. And it was just blood after blood after blood. And now we see here in verse 15, it says, for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Two things that I want you to note here and as we go in here to this next portion of scripture, that what we're going to be seeing is this, that we receive this eternal inheritance. It says here, for this reason, verse 15, he's the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What is this eternal inheritance? I want to just give you one passage. You can jot it down. I'm going to turn there. I'm going to turn to Daniel chapter 7, verse 18. And what Daniel 7.18 declares is this, those, oh, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Now, in case that doesn't make sense to you, in case you can't figure that one out, I love what Daniel says, the saints of the Most High, we're going to receive the kingdom. And he says, this is our inheritance. We are going to receive the kingdom. And not only are we going to receive the kingdom, he says, and possess the kingdom forever. We are not only going to receive it, but we're going to be owners of it. We're going to be possessors of it forever. And just in case you wonder, well, how long is forever? Well, then he adds even forever and ever. This is the inheritance that you and I receive. We receive the kingdom of God. We possess the kingdom of God forever, oh, even forever and ever. 
This is what we have. And so this is why we realize here that Jesus does two things. That one, we're going to see that he is the, the testator in just a moment, but we're also going to see that he's the mediator. And that's what it says here in verse 15. He's the mediator of the new covenant. What does it mean to be both a testator and a mediator? Well, if you're familiar with what a will is, a will is called the last will and testament. And the one who is the one who writes the will, he's called the testator. He's the one, this is my will, I'm the testator, it's my testament, it's my last declaration and, and testament of what I desire all of my possessions to go to through my children. And so we understand that here he's the mediator. Not only is he the one who has to die and he's going to be the testator, but then he becomes the one who mediates the will. He becomes the one that says, all right, well, I'm going to be the guy who comes and says, this is who gets what. Now, the amazing thing is this. I don't know if you've ever heard of what happens when a will is not very clear. When a will is not very clear, what happens is this. There's a lot of infighting. And you would think that, that the family would simply say, hey, whatever, you know, go ahead, be blessed. But it's always, this should be mine and this should be mine. What would really be good is this. If the person who died, if you could simply call them up in heaven and say, hey, wait a second. This, this, where does this go? Really, tell me which one is it? So I have two children, and they've both asked for one of the Bibles that I've taught from. And so when I die, each one of them is going to get a Bible. Now, one is going to get the Bible that I've already taught from, and one is going to get this Bible here that I'm teaching from now. Which is going to get which? Well, it would be really nice if when the time came, they said, wait a second, <laughs> if, if, if my son said, I want the second one, because he learned so much more the second time around, I don't want to have the first one, I want to have the second one. And then my daughter says, no, no, I get the second one because I'm older than you. And it'd be really nice if they could just say, let's call up, you know, dad in heaven and find out and say, you know, hey, Jesus, could you just get me dad? And, and we just want to find out which Bible is which. Who gets the older Bible? Who gets the newer Bible? And if they could ask me, it would be really easy. I'd say, oh, that was easy. And I'm not going to tell you which one. But it was like, this is so easy, which one it is. And so through this, what Jesus Christ does is this. He dies. He dies, and so because he dies, now his last will and testament, it's in effect. But just in case you're curious to, what is it that we get? Well, guess what? You could actually talk to Jesus because he's the mediator of this new testament. He's the mediator of this covenant. He's the mediator of this. And that's what verse 15 says. When we look at here how incredible this work of Jesus Christ is, how much his blood cleanses us from the conscience, God says, yes, Lord, and for this reason, he, Jesus Christ, is the mediator. He's the one who institutes and guides us through this new covenant. See, to be a testator, he can give us the covenant, but to be a mediator, he guides us through the covenant. This is the key to what we're about to see here in verse 15 and 16. Let's read this through again. And for this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, of the new covenant, 
by means of his death. Now, when he says he's the mediator of the new covenant, he doesn't say a different covenant. He doesn't say another covenant. He says a new covenant. In other words, old one has passed away, new one is here. So when he talks about this new covenant by means of death, his covenant comes because of the purchase price. When he dies, he purchases what? This new covenant, this sanctuary, this sacrifice, you and me being cleansed from the inward, he purchases this with his blood. And with that greatest of all cost, he now says, I purchased it, it's mine to do with what I want. It's his. And so we see for this reason, he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. He redeems, note this, he redeems every transgression under the old covenant. What does it mean? It means that everything that Moses ever wrote down as a commandment, a law, a statute, or a precept, Every one of those that were broken by anyone, it makes the statement for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant. In other words, the handwriting of the requirement that was against us, he's taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. This is what he's done. And understand that through his death, this most incredible purchase price ever, what he has done is he has redeemed, in other words, that he's purchased back from the slave market of sin, which is you and me that were there. He's purchased us back, the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. Now, what does this mean? Well, what verse 15 declares is this, that Adam all the way to us now. Anyone who is saved is saved by faith, is saved by grace, is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. They believed that this was going to happen. They believed in the covenant and they believed in the promise of God. And so when he first, when Adam sinned and, and, and what God had made a statement and he, he made it what we call the proto-evangelium where it says, yeah, that Jesus is going to have his heel bruised, but Satan is going to have his head crushed. God is going to take care of the sin. He's going to deal with it. And so we see here that, that through that incredible promise that what God begins to share is he talks about the coming one. He talks about the Messiah. He talks about here the one who will come. I just want to simply just read it to you. It's found in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse... I should get there. should have wrote it down. It says in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Singular, speaking of Jesus Christ. And you shall bruise, um, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. In other words, you're going to crush his head. So we see here that it's between Satan and the seed of the woman, not all of her children, simply the one who would come from her. So God had initially promised from Adam on, there will be this redemption that comes through the transgressions. And that's what verse 15 tells us. 
And I love the heart of it because he's the mediator of the new covenant by means of his death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant. That those who are called, that's from Adam all the way to us at this point, that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal, of the eternal inheritance. So when someone says, well, how was Adam saved and how was Moses saved and how was you know, um, Jacob say they were saved by faith through grace, the same as we are, all of us are. They believed that they would be coming up. And now in verse 16, it says, for where there is a testament, in other words, the last will and testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. So for the testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. So put this in example, say my two children come and say, well, I want your Bibles. Ain't happening. It isn't happening now. Um, and so it's after I die that you're going to get this, and, and, but not before. So as we look to this, and I find it just so beautiful that it says here, for where there is a testament, and this talks about the necessity of Jesus' death, where there is this giving there has to be what? There has to be the death. He has to die in order to give. Now, what he's done is this. He's purchased it all with his blood. He's purchased you. He's purchased me with the most perfect sanctuary, the most perfect um, sacrifice, everything that we see in Jesus Christ. He's purchased with his blood. Now, what he does with his, now that it's his, he says, listen, I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it to the Father, and I'm going to give it to you. And what he gives to the Father is us, and what he gives to us is what? The kingdom forever and ever. Yes, even forever and ever. We have the kingdom, the everlasting kingdom. We possess the kingdom. This is Jesus's. He's purchased it with his blood, and he says, now it's mine to give. But I can't give it until what? Well, until I die. Once I die, here's my last will and testament. And so he says in verse 16, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while a testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. So what we begin to see is this, that what happens is that as we now know why he needed to die, now what we're going to do is we're going to understand in a deeper sense why he had to die. And the reason we're going to do this is we're going to be studying his death. We, his death was stated why it was. Now we study it, but we study it through what? We study it through Moses. And as Moses being a type that is a finite, we're going to see how Jesus as this type goes to the infinite. Let's look at verse 18. I'm going to read all the way down through verse 22. In verse 18, it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God had commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tab tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry, and according to the law almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood there is no remission. 
So he talks about the cleanse, and he's talking about what Moses is doing. And he says simply that Moses dedicated everything with what? With the blood. Everything was a type of what? I'm giving this to God, and I'm purifying it. In other words, I'm, I'm allowing it to become holy. I'm separating it, and it becomes holy through the sprinkling of the blood. And then when it becomes, it's, it's now sanctified to God, set apart for God. And this is what Moses does. He does everything of the temple, the book, and through the tabernacle. He does this all through the purifying it with blood. He makes it holy. He makes it set apart according to for God. And then in verse 23, as we see here, as you look to Moses as this type, Verse 23 says, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven should be purified with these. So in other words, all the copies of the things in heaven, the thing that Moses made, the tabernacle, the altars, the lavers, all the instruments, everything that Moses made was a copy of what was there in heaven. And it says in verse 23, therefore, it was necessary that the copies of these things in heaven in the heavens, should be purified with these. But the heavenly things with the better sacrifices than these. So these were unwilling sacrifices, gave their blood. It was the blood of another, not the person itself. Remember, we already talked about that passage there in, in, in Ezekiel where he says, the soul that sins shall die. They should have died, not the sacrifice. The sacrifice was a nice covering but it wasn't one to remove it because it was an unwilling sacrifice and the blood of an animal, not your own blood. And so we see the animal wasn't your kinsman redeemer. Jesus now comes and he says, I'm going to willingly give myself for you. And this is why we see here it's a better sacrifice than these. Verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. We see here that as God comes, he says, I'm not going to do a simple type. I'm not going to simply do you know, something that's temporary. I'm going to go into very, the very heavens itself, to the very place of heaven itself, where it says in verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as a high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. Um, we see here in verse 24, Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself. We see here, he goes to heaven. He's in the very presence of God for us. And then verse 25, not that he should offer himself often. Understand that what Jesus does in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 30, you know this passage, don't have to turn there, jot it down if you're unfamiliar with it. But in John 19, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. He didn't say it started, almost done. He said, it is finished. And that's why we see here, in verse 25, that not that he should offer himself often. If he had to offer himself often, he would be giving himself as a sacrifice moment by moment by moment for my sin. And moment by moment by moment for your sin, he would be constantly offering himself. 
but because he is perfect and a willing sacrifice, and he does the highest cost. In other words, the greatest of all redemption. It's a one-time redemption for eternity. And that's why it says not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place year after year with the blood of another. Then he would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So we're looking here at what's known as the end of the ages. And so when it talks about that, what he's referring to is since the foundation of the world, but now at the end of the ages, in other words, when Jesus himself died there on the cross, that he took care of all the sin that was from Adam, and he will take care of all the sin from the very last man that is saved. All of it, to the end of the ages, every man will come through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so he's appeared to put away sin and not where it says he might have. When he says he's appeared, he's come to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. Now, some people say, well, Within this passage, it means you can only die once. What about the person who died and was, you know, resuscitated? Well, that that happens. And so what this referring to isn't talking about that you can die once and um, be resuscitated. What it's saying is this. When he himself, it is appointed for men to die once. The, the intent of it is basically that what he's going to do is it, it talks about that there's no reincarnation where or there's no um, there might be a resuscitation, but there is no resurrection. So when when we die outside of Christ, we simply die. Jesus, he came back in in a whole new body, a resurrected body. When Lazarus came back, he just came back in his own body and he died. So there is one death that we die in the flesh and then we now live forever in the spirit. So when we're looking at this in verse 27, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. And so through this, we see here at the end of the age, he's come, sacrificed himself. We die once and once we die, then it comes what? We go to the judgment. Now, the interesting thing is this. The judgment that we as Christians deal with is called the Bema Seed of Christ, that we are judged according to our works. In a sense, when God is judging our works as Christians, it's almost as if we're an, an entrance into the fair. And what a judge in the fair does is this. He says, you get the best of prize, you get a first place, you get a second place, and then, of course, the other ones get those little pink ribbons called participation. You get a participation ribbon. And, and it's true that there are going to be many Christians who get to heaven, and he's going to say, you get a participation ribbon. You were there, and that's as much as you get. You get this little pink partition ribbon, and so you participated. But there's others who have done more, and he says, I will reward you by what you have done. And so that's the Bema Seed of Christ. Now, what happens is this. 
if your plant doesn't live up to expectations and you only get a participant, they don't throw you in jail because it's a lousy plant. It's like you just don't get a good prize. That's all you do. Now, there's another judgment, which is a great white throne judgment, and this is where they're judged according to their works. We're not there. We, we have no sin to be judged with. They're all judged by their sin, and then they're cast into the everlasting fire, into the outer darkness. So we see here, we die once. We're not reincarnated into something else. We just die once, and then we have the judgment. So when we pass from this body, whether we died and we were resuscitated, that's okay. You're still in this body. So was everyone else with the exception of what? Jesus Christ being the first fruits. New body. He could actually go appear, disappear at will when he wanted to. So verse 28, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So it just simply says that he's going to come back. He's going to bring us to himself. And, and what a glorious thing that's going to be. Now, he's going to come back to the Christian. He's going to bring us to the rapture. He's going to come at the end of the tribulation. He's going to bring those to himself as he allows the, the angels to just bring his elect from all the earth back to him, to Jerusalem when he comes back. But we see here, and I love the heart of it, Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. So every sin of every man, of all mankind, was paid for at the one moment in time when Jesus died on the cross. And now we who eagerly wait for him, he's going to appear this second time. He's going to come back and say, here I am. I'm here for you. And so that's why he tells his disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there's many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And where I am, there you will be also. I'm going to bring you to myself. And I love the heart of this. So as we look to this, I think it's just so wonderful to understand what this covenant is, what his sacrifice is. And realize, and this is where I'm going to just reiterate one more time, that God now only sees what? He doesn't judge us, the worshiper. He only judges the sacrifice. And that's how you and I approach. That's why the enemy's accusations mean nothing. And, and so realize this. When you come to God, you're coming through the work, the body, the blood of Jesus Christ. This is our access, and this is why we are accepted in the beloved. Amen? Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for just this passage. We thank you again for just illuminating us and enlightening us to just how incredible Jesus your work is, how incredible your blood is, that you've purchased all these things with your blood. You purchased us. You purchased the... Um, everything, the world back with your blood. And then you, Lord, you, Lord, as you own it all, you then are allowed to give it to whom you choose. But you can't give it until after you die. <laughs> and so you died so that you could give it. And just in case there were any, any questions on who was getting what, you said, guess what? I'm going to come alive again and I'm going to mediate. I'm going to be the one to say, who gets what and where goes where. 
that's you, Lord, and you can, only you can do this. And you promised us eternity. You promised us eternity, an eternal kingdom, a possession of that kingdom forever. Yes, forever and ever. And we want to be those who just are grateful, just grateful, Lord, asking that you would work in our hearts, that we would already and just be the servants of the master of this kingdom, that we would be no more than your servants, doing what you ask us to do out of gratitude and gratefulness. So draw us to that heart, Lord. Draw us to that heart, we ask in Jesus' name. And all the King, kingdom saints said, amen.